Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, everybody out there in podcast land. You are in tune to another episode of Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective. This is Hamza. And I am David. Really excited, guys, for this podcast because, as you know, uh, in real life and people that connect with me on the Internet, I am a huge movie guy. I love movies. Uh, unfortunately, to some people would say that I reference movies for real life for certain circumstances. <laughs> And so our guest today, uh, she has been profiled in the New York Times, The Economist, Forbes, all the lovely periodicals that I read. Uh, I don't read the Ladies' Home Journal, but she's been in the she's been in the Washingtonian Magazine, CFO Magazine, a ton of of, of of business magazines. She's also appeared as the Movie Mom on CBS This Morning, Fox Movie News, NPR, dozens of radio stations. Very happy to have her. She's going to talk about movie reviews with a parent's eye. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome Nell Minow to the podcast. Welcome, Nell. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure. Thanks Absolutely. For being Thanks for being with us. And I guess this is an old reference, but your last name, was it in reference to the Minnow may be lost? Well, yeah, as a matter of fact. My father was the chairman of the Federal Communications Commission uh, during President Kennedy's term of office. And wow. he was the first person to have that job who was critical of television. The predecessors all wanted jobs in television. And he was the first one who got up and said, television needs to be better. And if you're going to get a license from the federal government to be a broadcaster, you are going to have to do better. And at that time, by the way, there were only 15 minutes of news on TV every day, and there was no children's programming. And it was a lot of game shows and westerns. And so he said, television is a vast wasteland, and you have to do better. And Sherwood Schwartz, the television producer, was so furious at my dad for saying that, he decided to insult him by naming, yep, the sinking ship on Gilligan's Island as an insult to my dad. <laughs> wow. Wow, we think it is the coolest thing ever, and my dad, age 93, still going strong, has one of the life preservers from the SS Minnow on the wall of his office. Wow. I love it. I love that See, you story. Didn't know, you didn't know you were going to get that kind of an answer, did you? No. no. <laughs> I think David would concur. That's why we do this podcast. That's a great and yeah. I'm just, he said it was a, a wasteland with 15 minutes of news. What does he think today where you have a 24-hour news cycle? Well, uh, uh, I think he thinks, uh, you know, it's the best of times, the worst of times. You know, what he wanted was choice. So he was responsible for getting the first uh, telecommunication satellite launched, for starting the presidential debates, for starting PBS, starting Sesame Street. He was involved in all of that. And uh, I think he would say that um, that choice is certainly a good thing, but it's been very divisive, and that he's not so happy about. And certainly he thinks that there's a lot more junk. He's, he once said it's not a vast wasteland anymore. It's a toxic waste dump. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I, I wouldn't argue that point at all. And so since you have that, I mean, the fruit doesn't fall far from the tree. You were talking about... <laughs> Television. I'm going to throw a lot of anecdotes in there, but um, you 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 got into the movie world. So were you marrying like, oh, I love what Dad's doing with TV, and I want to do the movie side. Very much so. I mean, my parents were always great about 
you know, saying, hey, there's this great movie on TV, you're going to love it, you've got to watch it, or, you know, taking us to the movies and also teaching us to be critical about whatever we saw. Even if it was really good, we would talk about what worked, what didn't work. And uh, so, yeah, they always made me very aware of media. And then uh, I wrote movie reviews for my high school and college papers, and I studied film history and criticism in college. And then I went to law school and did other things. But uh, when I had young children, if you remember a long time ago, there used to be a thing called video stores. And I would take my kids to the video stores, and I would see these parents looking panicked in front of the new releases shelf. They didn't know what was appropriate for kids, and certainly the 15-year-old behind the cash register wasn't going to tell them. And the Internet was brand new at that time. Um, the World Wide Web had just started. And I, you know, at that time, most of the websites were, this is me, this is my dog, you know, here's my coffee pot. There was really nothing happening on the web. And so I said, you know, I think I'd just start writing some movie reviews and putting them up. And... Five years later, the Internet had grown up all around me, and uh, Yahoo, which didn't exist when I started, called me up out of the blue and said, do you want to be our movie critic? And I said, okay. Wow. I love that. And, and just I'm showing my age, but what is a video store? <laughs> Before there was Netflix, you had to actually go and pick out your video at the video store. And uh, then if you didn't get it back on time, there would be a big fine. Yeah, charge of late fees. I want to ask you now, because the timing, I mean, it's one, it sounds a little bit like um, Life is a Box of Chocolates. And <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, there's your like first you were... movie reference. Are we going to keep track? I told you. I don't know. I gotta. <laughs> so yeah, it's like you know, I lined myself and I was at this bus stop, and then all of a sudden, uh, <laughs> Yahoo called me and told me <laughs> they wanted me to be a movie critic. Well, so... but, but the reason that they called me is that I'd done the work. You know, by that time I had 500 reviews online, and that was more than most other people. There had been other people who said, "Yeah, I'll write movie reviews," but they, you know, they petered out. They got distracted. They you know, they realized how hard work it was and they didn't do it anymore. But I kept it up. And by that time, I'd, already, I'd also written a book about movies. And so I had done the work. And, uh, and they didn't pick me because um, they uh, just were looking for any movie critic. They picked me because they thought it you know, was family-friendly and that suited what they were going for. And uh, they liked the way I wrote. Absolutely. I think just as an aside is that since you write for a lot of business periodicals and, and entrepreneurship and intrinsic motivation, that the stick with itness is actually what makes you a success. There are a lot of people that start out, but they don't finish. So exactly. I think that we don't want to gloss over that point now. So you know, and let me emphasize that point because a lot of times people say to me, oh, I want to be a movie critic. And I say, great, I just waved my magic wand. You're a movie critic. Now you actually have to do it. You have to write the reviews. And I always say to them, there was a woman who got her Ph.D. She didn't have a job. She just started writing movie reviews and putting them on the online. And they were so good that within a year she was hired by the New York Times and then by Slate Magazine. So you have to do the work and you have to be excellent at it. And that's the tough part. Hmm. So now let me ask you, are you able to 
when you watch a movie, I mean, there are, is there a difference between, hey, I'm just going to sit down and watch this movie because I feel like watching a movie as opposed to that mindset of having to, um, you know, critique it and, and do a review on it. Is there a difference between the, those two spaces for you? That is an excellent question. The answer is absolutely. Uh, I recently saw the movie Book Smart, which I like very much, and of course I'm always sitting there taking notes and thinking, what am I going to say about this, and is this something I want to remember? And then I, I liked it so much that I took two of my friends to see it, and it was such a pleasure to sit there and not have to take notes and not have to think about what I was going to write. So, yeah, it is a different – you've got to have sort of two parts of your brain clicking along at the same time. And, uh, and yeah, it is a very different experience. But I love watching movies, and I watch as many for pure pleasure as I do to write about. Wow. How many movies would you say you watch during the course of a week? Well, I would say at least one a day. Very often, maybe as many as ten a week. Wow. Wow. We're not worthy. We're not worthy. <laughs> Second movie <laughs> reference. But, but there's another movie reference. Nice going. Um, but, uh, you know, that, to, to put that in economic terms, that's what's called a sunk cost, meaning I was already going to do that. I had to find a way to monetize it so that instead of feeling like I was wasting my time or taking time away from my other job, uh, that I could make it into a job in and of itself, and, um, and, and that's worked out very well. The one thing I did not think about, though, which I should have, is that once you become a professional critic – you are seeing a lot of terrible movies. And, you know, if you're just a normal person who loves movies, you're pretty much only going to good ones. Because of why? Because of critics like me that say, no, don't go to see Dark Phoenix. It's a total waste of time. And uh, so it took me about a year to get used to the idea that a lot of the movies that I would be seeing were terrible. I don't want to gloss over this point, but you made reference to Dark Phoenix and you said waste of time. Is that yes. what your review was? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I thought, it was, I thought it was terrible. And I think the last couple of X-Men movies have been a big disappointment. Now, you need to know, I am a Comic-Con attending fangirl uh, who married a man with a comic book collection. So I am not a snob in any way about superhero movies. I love superhero movies. But Dark Phoenix... Uh, made two critical mistakes. I think in a superhero movie, you really have to have two things. You have to have a great villain. I think the villain is more important in many ways than the, than the superhero. And you have to have a sense of the stakes in any uh, battle that the superhero is fighting in. But with Dark Phoenix, they just sort of say, well, she's got a lot of powers, but you don't really know what the powers are, and you don't know what the powers of the person she's fighting are. So it's hard, you know, like the classic is Superman. You know exactly what his powers are, and you know what his kryptonite does to him. And so at any moment in a given fight, he's either getting closer to the kryptonite or further from the kryptonite, or, you know, you, you know what's happening. But in Dark Phoenix, they really did not do that. And also, I thought the other thing that I didn't like about Dark Phoenix is that you can have, you know, a funny superhero, you can have a depressed superhero, you can have all kinds of superheroes, but you shouldn't have a whiny superhero. And I just thought she was very whiny, like, I don't know what to do now, you know, and <laughs> I just thought that was, that was not, I didn't like that. 
Now, the timing, well, I have to stay here for a second because it is, it is timely, and we're talking about movie reviews with a parent's eye, and it just came, had come out in the last 30 days or so. And so I believe the period piece was the mid-'90s. And since it was the mid-'90s, and thankfully they, they, didn't do like, um, they didn't do a bunch of 90s references like in the, um, the other Marvel movie, but they killed off one of the, the actresses in the movie, but she's in the – older X-Files or X-Men movies, which are current. Oh, my gosh. So it doesn't it make sense. None of it makes sense. I mean, the movie is supposed to take place seven years before the first X-Men movie, which means that in seven years, Professor X and Magneto age like 30 years. <laughs> All of a sudden, James McAvoy turns into Patrick Stewart. What? <laughs> <laughs> that is too funny. Oh my goodness. Okay, so what is your favorite X Men movie? Oh boy. Uh maybe first class. Okay. Okay. Because there's there's that theme of, you know, we're being uh vilified and how can we live amongst everyone and I guess first class kinda highlights the origin yeah. of that. Yeah. So the, yeah, exactly. So I think that's probably my favorite. Uh but um but I've got some affection for the very first one. I thought uh I thought that was I like that one a lot. Um uh but but I've been very disappointed. You know, in Excellent Apocalypse, they took one of my favorite actors, Oscar Isaac. I completely love him. And when you get Oscar Isaac, you have the benefit of having his beautiful eyes. He's got like those Al Pacino eyes, incredibly expressive, and that wonderful voice, his speaking voice, you know, which is so great in movies like Inside Lewin Davis. And they took both of those away from him. They covered up his eyes and they distorted his voice. Why have him there? You know, it's sort of like when Justin Timberlake did the voice of Yogi Bear. I mean, if you're going to have Justin Timberlake's voice, let's hear his voice. Don't distort it by playing it on super fast. I think that's the other part. One part I, I don't, I do want to go back a little bit because you, David asked you how many do you watch, and you said that there's a sunk cost. And so the first question is, uh, or the first point is, doing what you love. Once you do what you love, then it's not really work. Do you feel that way? And then the second part of that question is, there's a young gentleman, let's call him that, and he's been recorded as watching the uh, the latest Marvel movie, Endgame, over 100 times. So I wanted to get your take on that as well. <laughs> well, you know, I guess I'm going to use another economic term and, and talk about leverage, uh, which is just a fancy way of saying if you're smart, you'll always be the second person to go through the revolving door because somebody else will push it for you. And yes. so you want to get as much momentum as you possibly can so that everything you add on to it will take it that much farther. And that's what I mean by saying that you, you love what you do. I'm always happy to go to a movie. Um, and I'm always, you know, when the lights come down, it's always a thrill for me. I always am looking forward to the experience that I'm going to have. And 
so that makes the parts that are maybe not as much fun, like actually writing the review, I mean, writing is work, uh, and um, dealing with uh, all of the, I guess I want to say the entrepreneurial side of it, because after uh, I left Yahoo, I've been to other places, and I'm on the radio, um, you know, you're running a small business as well. Um, it makes it worth it, because the central part of your of your uh, work is doing something that you really love. So you're never going to love every part of a job. Um, there's always going to be, just like you're never going to love every part of being a grown-up, you still have to pay your mortgage. You know, you, don't, you can set your own bedtime, which when you're a child seems like a, a really great thing. But uh, that means you still have to get up in the morning. You're responsible for a lot of stuff. So nothing is ever going to be perfect. Um, but if you love the central part of what you're doing, if you feel good about it, if you feel you're making a contribution, then it fuels you along through the parts that are not as much fun. Now, as for somebody who wants to spend 100, uh, 100 hours watching Endgame, um, you know, uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, people spend 100 hours doing a video game or they spend 100 hours fishing. Uh, whatever it is that you find that you love, go ahead and do it, and it will somehow um, be a part of what helps you grow into the future. Now, people do get stuck sometimes, and they should not do that, but um, this seems like a, a, a useful uh indiscretion that will be fun to brag about years from now mm -hmm. and less and, per less permanent than a really bad tattoo sure oh absolutely and the reason why i wanted to bring it up is because uh the let's just say outsiders for people that listen to this podcast mm -hmm. um you are a like you said self-professed a fan a movie fan a comic-con you married a husband that has comics and so the in the news when they were talking about this guy they were like he's guaranteed to live a life of loneliness and be by himself and that's not the case i don't think that's true at all and by the way people who have that stereotype should come to comic-con and see there are a lot of lot of sparks being <laughs> being cast off of people at comic-con uh, I love Comic-Con, and I just want to say a, a thing about it. In fact, I'll tell you one of my favorite Comic-Con stories. I was walking down the hallway at Comic-Con, and I overheard someone say, what time is the Klingon wedding? And I just said to myself, I'm proud to live in a world where <laughs> there is a Klingon wedding. There's not even a word for love in Klingon, but God bless them for having a Klingon wedding. <laughs> and, you know... <laughs> Uh, everybody who comes to Comic-Con comes because they're passionate about something. And everyone there, unlike the rest of the world, everyone there is totally on board with each other's passions. You know, you will meet somebody standing in line and say, what are you here for? And they say, you know, I'm really into Pokemon. And the other one says, well, I'm really into X-Men. They're like, that's so cool. That's so great. Everybody is like so excited to be there and so happy. And, uh, and it's just a wonderful energy to be around. Absolutely. We're well, here in now, Atlanta now. Go ahead, Dave. I was going to ask now. Now, when you were a child, what were some of your favorite uh, like TV shows that you like to watch? <laughs> Remember my dad? He didn't let us watch TV. <laughs> we were very, very, very strictly controlled on what we could watch on TV, and it wasn't until I went to college that I was able to catch up on some of the shows uh -huh. that I, how my friends uh, had watched, including. Um, Star Trek, which I watched the original, the original Star Trek, I watched, um, you know, was on 
uh, every night at 7 o'clock. And so I caught up on all, was it three seasons of the original, uh, very quickly yeah. when I was in college. Um, but they did, my parents did let us watch things that they thought were great. And that included uh, Rocky and Bullwinkle. Uh, mm-hmm. which, we, which we loved, and um, Laughing, Ronan Martin's Laughing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I loved The Man from Uncle. That was, uh, the Man from Uncle was something I, I was really crazy about. Yeah. And The Dick Van Dyke yeah. Show, which is still my all-time favorite TV show. The Dick I love Mary Tyler Moore. I love Mary Tyler Moore. Who doesn't Mary love Tyler Mary Tyler Moore? Tyler Moore. That, I know, who that episode where, where she's Snoopy Nose, and she opens up the package, and it turns out to be uh, a fishing boat. is one of the funniest things I've ever seen. Nice. Uh, We're here in Atlanta now. We're here in Atlanta. So, do you ever go to Dragon Con? I have never been to Dragon Con. I have a couple of friends who've been there, and it sounds great. It's it's the whole city shuts down, and we have parades, and yeah, it's a, a pretty big event. Yeah, I would love to do that. Nice. Uh, let me ask you for, I know in the music industry, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, we have payola. So you're like, oh, I love this song, but they play it 100 times a day because they're being paid to do that. And I was just wondering what someone with such a reputation of doing reviews, have people tried to sway you or change your opinion on a, <laughs> a, a piece before the movie comes out? Uh, I guess I would say in a very low-key way. Sometimes they will send you a little bit of swag, a T-shirt, mm-hmm. something like that. Um, good luck getting, uh, trying to get me to change my mind. Uh, the funniest experience I had like that was that I saw a movie that I just hated. I really hated it. And so I came home. Do you know the Internet Movie Database? Do you ever look at the Internet Movie Database? It's got yeah. all the lists of all the you know, people that make the movies. Mm-hmm. So I looked it up, and I saw that the person who wrote it uh, had also written one of the other movies that I had seen that year that I hated. And I, and I hated them both for the same reason. They both had the same stupid stuff wrong with them. And so I wrote a review where I said, this writer is responsible for two of the worst movies of the year. And I could have said, ever made. I thought I was being pretty mild with that. Now, I have to tell you that in both of the movies, these stupid, stupid movies, she had the same stupid plot where the main character outsmarted everybody by faking a phone call. So I get an email now from the writer that I had criticized saying that she was going to have her lawyer call me and sue me over my review. And I said, this idiot has got exactly one idea in her head. She's going to have somebody fake a phone call to me. That's the only thing she knows how to do. So I said, no, 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 give me your lawyer's phone number. I will call them because I happen to be a lawyer. And uh, I'm sure your lawyer understands, as I do, that the expression of an opinion by a critic is protected speech and also truth is a defense. So never heard from her again. Yeah. <laughs> can you can you mention? Do you want to mention what movie that was? <laughs> no. Okay. Wow, David, I, you I want us to get the call? I guarantee you've never heard of it. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> thanks, <laughs> thanks, David. <laughs> David doesn't feel those calls. I'm just curious. I want to know. <laughs> I guess the well, other side be- of a, attorneys. Don't ask her those questions, David. <laughs> um, if you really want me to tell you, I will. 
No, that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> okay. That's okay. I guess well, the, the kind of you can tell me off air. <laughs> yeah, tell them, tell them off air because uh, okay, David's yeah. a big movie file too. But outside of the attorneys, do you ever go into like Twitter flame wars as well with uh, somebody that may be a fan of that movie you were just talking about? And they're like, "Oh yeah, Zelda doesn't know what he's talking about." The funny, the funniest one of those that I ever got was, and I will tell you the name of the movie, and you can roll your eyes. Well, I won't care because we're on the phone <laughs> and I can't see it. But I gave a particular movie its only good review. Okay, and. Okay. And I can tell you why, but you're gonna, you're, you're gonna, you've not seen the movie. I guarantee you've not seen the movie, but you're gonna think I should not have given it a good review anyway. But the movie okay. was called Bratz, B-R-A-T-Z, and it was based on the dolls. And I was pleasantly surprised, and I particularly okay. was very pleasantly surprised by the way that it treated race and gender and disability. So I gave it, I didn't say this is a great movie, but I said, you know, it's a cute movie and, and I like these things about it. Okay, so I wrote this review and I get, a, I get a, an email from somebody who I'm guessing was 15 because 15-year-olds write the angriest emails or people who are mentally 15. So, uh, so he wrote and he said, I can't believe that you gave this movie a good review. Why would you give it a good review? Now, the thing about a review is it tells you right in the review why it's a good review or a bad review. So I could tell from the fact that he wrote and asked me why I liked the movie that he hadn't read the review. So I said, did you read my review? And by the way, did you see the movie? And he said, he wrote back and he said, no, I don't have to see the movie to know it's terrible. And I don't have to read your review to know that it's terrible. And I said, well, actually you do. That's kind of the thing. And he said, well, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book where he said, called Blink, where he said, sometimes your immediate reaction is accurate. And I said, did you read Malcolm Gladwell's book? Because that's not what <laughs> no. he said. No. Right. I said, okay, so just to recap here, based on a book you haven't read, a movie you haven't seen, you and a what? review it's... you haven't read, you're going to tell me I'm wrong. I'm good with that. That's fine. Yeah. What else can you say? What about... Um... Directors, do you have like a favorite director or someone well, you really enjoy, sure, you I enjoy mean, watching? Yeah, there are a lot of directors that I like. I think my all-time favorite director, my my, I tend to like uh, writer directors, people who do both. Um, mm -hmm. And so my all-time favorite uh, directors are generally people who write and direct. So I like um, Billy Wilder, who did some like It Hot and Sunset Boulevard. Uh, Ace in the Hole, just, you know, one wonderful movie after another. And uh, just a huge, huge fan of Billy Wilder, really interesting person. Um, and Preston Sturgis, those are both directors from the 1940s that, that I like a lot. And today, um, there are so many that I like. I just saw a movie by a first-time director that I absolutely loved. I cannot wait to see. There's nothing like discovering a brand-new director um, you know, and you, I still remember, you know, the first time that I saw a Scorsese film, the first time I saw a Ron Howard film, the first time I saw um, uh, Ryan Johnson, uh, you know, you, you just get so excited because it's like, it's like making a new friend. It's somebody I can't wait to see what they do next. So the movie that I just saw that, I, that just blew me away um, is called The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Have you heard of it? No. Have no. you, David? No, I haven't. Oh, let me tell you what a 
gorgeous, wonderful movie this is. And the, um, the guy who stars in it is named Jimmy Fails, and he plays a character named Jimmy Fails. And much of the movie is based on his own life, and he helped to write the film as well. So the writer and the director, uh, and then the, the star and the director uh, wrote the film with some other people. And it's just a, such a smart, interesting provocative, beautifully performed, touching, poetic film. I cannot speak too highly of it. And, uh, and I, I just think it's wonderful. If you saw last year, there were a couple of movies that were on similar themes. Um, Blind Spotting uh, mm-hmm. and Sorry to Bother You. Uh, they both mm-hmm. dealt with gentrification in Northern California. And, yep. uh, and this is another in that, in that same group that, you know, all three of those movies were by first-time directors, all th- and all three of them just fabulous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wanted, so I speaking, wanted to apologize. To... Go ahead, David. I was going to say, well, speaking, when you're talking about first-time directors, and I don't know if you're a fan of his or not, but um, I think uh, Quentin Tarantino's first film was like Reservoir Dogs if I'm not mistaken. And what did you think of that? Well, I think, you know, I mean, that's exactly what I'm talking about. That's a director who just announced himself as a unique perspective, as a visceral, uh, very, very, very knowledgeable. By the way, he got his education in film from working where? In a video store. In a video store, yeah. That's right. Yeah, I I was so impressed. Yeah. Uh, so uh so he's he's a terrific director um i have parted ways with him um in his recent films and i'm not too excited about him doing a star trek film now uh i think that uh there's a kind of a soullessness to his movies that bothers me a lot um and uh you know hateful eight and you know, they're they're just they're all about sensation, and there's no um, there's no spirit in them, and and so um, I, you know I've I've kind of parted ways with him recently. I did like Kill Bill though. I think it's the last one of his movies that I really liked. You really like that? I just remember reading. It's like how did this guy go from a video store to Reservoir Dogs, and I was just more than impressed for someone who had never made a movie before, directed one. He came out with that, and then of course he followed up with Pulp Fiction. That's just like, wow, that just, how do you just go from nothing to your first two movies are just like that? I was, I was impressed. Yeah, well, he paid attention. But, I mean, you you know, if you look at Steven Spielberg, he was a fully formed director from the beginning. First thing I think he directed was a, an episode of, uh, of a TV show, uh, starring Joan Crawford of all people. And, um, and, uh, you know, he knew what he was doing. Or if you saw his early TV movie, Duel, that was yeah, just, Duel. A, just a masterpiece for somebody yeah. who was so young. So, yeah, yeah you know, I these, agree. These, yeah, so, uh, you know, it's wonderful when somebody kind of arrives fully cooked in that way. Yeah. And Blank, so I and, ask, and, and, I, and I just mentioned um, Booksmart. That was a first-time uh, feature from Olivia Wilde. She directed some music videos, but that's her first time directing a feature, and uh, it features her, her, the father of her children, her, her significant other, uh, Jason Sudeikis is in it, and I just thought, again, it, it showed so much intelligence about filmmaking, as well as being just a wonderful movie. I cannot wait to see what she does next. Mm. So I have to ask you, one of my favorite movies is um, 
the cook that feeds his wife and her lover. <laughs> yeah, that's not going to be one of my favorites. That's going to be Yeah, I, I just the reason I like it is because the main <laughs> male character, um, I think, is Michael Gambone. I think. Yeah. I thought he just thought a fabulous job of. I think when when you're ready to jump through the screen and just strangle someone because it's just so despicable, it's like, hey, they're doing their job as an actor. And I thought he just did a terrific job in that movie. It's just someone you just like, God, this guy, you just you just wanted to strangle. He was just so terrible of a person. And um, but that's his job as an actor is to come off, you know, for that character. Yeah. And that's like yeah. uh, Dennis Hopper in Blue Velvet. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And just for people who might not know who Michael Gambon is, do you want to say what his role is in the Harry Potter films? Um, well, I hate to say it, but I haven't really seen any Harry Potter films. He plays Dumbledore. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> so you haven't seen any Harry Potter films. Goodness. Well, it just shows you the cook, the thief, his wife, and his lover spoiled you. Yeah, that's, that's right. <laughs> well, you know, one of my favorite movies of all time is um, um, It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. Oh, and the I reason love I, that. I know. Well, the reason I say that, I think the first time I saw it was like eight years old, early set, and I never laughed so hard in my life. I thought it was the greatest movie ever. I'm like, how come no one ever told me about this movie? And whenever it's on, I watch it. And I love it, still love it to this day, but I have vivid memories, fond memories of a child watching that movie and just laughing my butt off. It was the funniest movie, I thought. <laughs> it is the funniest movie, and it has everybody in it. So it's yep. a great introduction to comedy because you'll want to follow up and see more of all of those people. And yeah. uh, my, my grandparents took me to that at a drive-in theater, and we just had the best time in the entire world. And I, I also watch it whenever it comes on, especially the last 15 minutes, which I really, yeah. really love with Ethel Merman. It, yeah, it was great. Everyone's so silly, and it was, just, it was just the funniest movie. I just love it. I still love it. One of my favorite movies. I love it, too. And as a matter of fact, there's another movie that came out around the same time that I really love, which is what I currently have from Netflix, which I'm planning to watch uh, this week, uh, which is The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming. Mm, okay. So it's the same kind of humor, and it's absolutely great. Yeah. <laughs> I'll check that one out, then. All right. Yeah, I'm writing that one down, too. Definitely. And so when David mentioned that he hadn't seen any Harry Potter movies, there may not be a lot of children in his life. And we're talking about movie reviews with a parent's eye. So how do you make the distinction when nieces and nephews get the no from their parents, but they may pull on their uncle or aunt's arm to take them to the movie to see it? Oh, my gosh, you do whatever the parents want. It's their kid. You can mess up your own kid. You can put aside money for the therapy bills and take him to the thief, the cook, the wife, and his lover if you want. But, uh, but no, the parents get to decide uh, what the children should see. And don't put the children in a bad position of, um, of, uh, of getting in trouble. Um, for for uh, You know, I mean, it's one thing if you let them have an extra scoop of ice cream. But, you know... People spend literally tens of billions of dollars every year on the idea that a 30-second ad can make you change your mind about something or can affect the way you feel. And imagine what a movie can do. And when I was writing my book, my first book about movies, I interviewed a lot of people in their 20s because I figured that 
they would be old enough to remember what movies upset them when they were young um, with a, and, and have some perspective on it. And every one of them, this surprised me a lot, every one of them immediately had some movie that they felt very traumatized by as a child, and their voices would shake. I mean, they still, it was very emotional for them. And, they, and, and the ones who were the most upset were the ones whose parents let them see it. When they, when they saw something that they knew their parents didn't want them to see, it wasn't quite as traumatizing. But, you know, part of that is just growing up. Part of that is, I, I talked to a woman once who had a two-year-old who said that her two-year-old loved to watch The Sound of Music, and did I think that was okay because of the Nazis? I said, look, a two-year-old not only doesn't know what Nazis are, she doesn't know what's happening in the movie. She thinks they're having a picnic and they're singing a song like Barney. They're over here and then they're singing another song. She doesn't know about the Nazis, but when she gets to be eight or nine years old, she'll watch the same movie and she'll get very upset because she'll understand it. And, you know, we all go through that period where some Something that didn't upset us one day will upset us the next day because our minds have matured. We've learned more. We know more. And that's part of growing up. And that's, a th- you know, one of the important life skills you need to teach your kids is how to respond when you're scared because they're going to get scared. You're going to get scared. We're going to get scared today. You can go see us and get scared. That's fine. How do you respond to being scared? You need to learn some skills for that. But, uh, but, that that doesn't mean that you want to make life more difficult by showing kids something that's not right for them. Now, my son uh, never got scared in movies. And, in fact, he came to see me once and said, I want to talk to you about something. And I said, okay. He said, I feel strongly that I need to see scarier movies. And I said, you've come to the right person. You happen to be fortunate enough to be the son of somebody who's an expert on movies. So we're going to talk about all the different kinds of scary. There's jump out at you scary. There's gory scary. There's suspense scary. There's this, you know, blah, blah, blah. And we're going to watch movies in every one of those categories. We're going to talk about the different kinds of scary. And we're, we're going to work our way up to a movie that everybody agrees is a very scary movie, a movie called Psycho by uh, Alfred Hitchcock. He said, Okay. And we did. We watched all these different kinds of scary movies, and we talked about, you know, being scared. Meanwhile, I have a daughter who does not like today, even though she's a grown-up. She still doesn't like scary movies, and that's fine. So every child is different. What I try to do in my reviews is give parents the information that they need so that they can make a decision based on what's right for their individual kids and their family values, so that a movie that maybe it was okay for my son to watch when he was 10, it wouldn't be okay for my daughter to watch when she was 14 because it just wasn't her kind of movie. Mm. Well, I'll admit my, my childhood scary movie was The Wizard of Oz and Those Flying Monkeys. Freaked me out. You've got, <laughs> you got a big crowd. If there was a Facebook group called... I was terrified by the Flying Monkeys and Wizard of Oz. It would be a very, very, very big group because I hear that one all the time. All the time? Yeah, the time. that was just wow. <laughs> yeah, that is, that, is, that is one of the most popular scary memories is the Flying Monkeys. And uh, for me, the scarier part of the Wizard of Oz, still one of the scariest things I ever saw in a movie, and then I'll tell you the movie that scared me the most of all time. But the, the thing that scared me the most in the Wizard of Oz is when the witch says, and the, the last to die will see the others die before her. Because there's only one her in the group, so we know who she's talking about. And the yeah. idea that Dorothy would have to watch all of her friends die, that really scared me. Now, the scariest mm-hmm. thing I ever saw in a movie 
ever was a movie called The Shining. Mm-hmm. And it's when <laughs> Shelley Duvall finds out that all Jack Nicholson has been typing all that time is all work and no play. All work and no play. Yeah. That freaked me out so much. I still can hardly even imagine that. And I'll tell you something funny about that scene. Uh, There's a documentary called Room 237, which is all the fan crazy fan theories about the movie, which are banana boats. But one thing that I learned from that movie that I thought was fascinating is that every time you see Jack Nicholson typing in that movie, it's a different typewriter. (laughs) And you don't notice it, but there's something unsettling about it. And I think that's fascinating. Also, in the non-English versions of the movie, they have there's a whole list you can find online of all the different sayings that they did in all the different languages. I love that. Yeah. So what, that was your all-time scariest moment in the movie. What's your favorite movie of all time? My favorite movie of all time yeah. is called The Philadelphia Story with Cary Grant, Jimmy Stewart, who got the Oscar for his performance in that, and Katherine Hepburn. I just love it. Mm-hmm. I always have, and uh, that will always be my favorite. I'm a big Cary Grant fan. When I was pregnant with my son, my first child, uh, the uh, obstetrician told us that the baby would recognize our voices when he was born from hearing them uh, in utero. And my husband said, well, in that case, he's going to recognize Cary Grant's voice, too, because she watches a lot of Cary Grant movies. <laughs> <laughs> nice. nice. I have a what question about... You? about what are your, I want to know what your favorite movies are. Go for it, David. Um, well, as a child, like I said, the, the, you know, it's a mad, 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 mad world. And I've always liked, whenever it's on, I'll watch it. It doesn't seem to be on talking, but... Um, Hard Times with um, mm. Charles Bronson. Mm-hmm. I was always a Charles Bronson fan, and and, uh, and just I don't know. I've always that's always been one of my favorite movies, for whatever reason. That's I think that's a great choice, and Charles Bronson. I think Charles Bronson is great. Did you, did you ever see The Magnificent Seven? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, he's really good in that. Yeah, Great Escape, all those movies that he was in. But yeah, Hard Times. Just I don't know. I just like. The cinematography, everything about it. I always, I, that was Great. always one of my favorite movies. Yeah. Hamza? Nice. Sure. Uh, my top two would be, uh, for right now, would be uh, The Matrix and Beautiful Mind. Ah, oh, mm. nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So with Charles Bronson, uh, I want to ask you, because you have referenced that movie, uh, what's your take on remakes? Well, I know remakes get kind of a bad rap and everybody rolls their eyes and says, really, do we need this? And you're often right about that. I mean, we've had three live-action Disney remakes this year, and I don't think any of them were necessary. Uh, Mm -hmm. I haven't seen the Lion King one yet, but doesn't it make you laugh that they're calling it live-action when the whole thing is CGI? (laughs) I don't don't get that at all. But anyway, what's what's live-action? The tree, you know? And I'm sure Beyonce will be great, and, but yeah, it's just really unnecessary, and it does reflect a, a lack of imagination. On the other hand, I always remind people that The Maltese Falcon, one of the most famous movies ever made with 
Humphrey Bogart. That was the second remake of that movie. Nobody remembers the first two because they weren't that good. So I think remakes can be good. They, you know, we're still watching Shakespeare. We're still reading the Odyssey. There are lessons from these stories that apply to us at different times. I think one interesting series of remakes are the remakes of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. I don't know how many of those you've seen, but uh, the last one was terrible. But before that, the one from the uh, 50s, uh, the one from the 70s, the one from the 90s, they each reflected what was going on in the world at that time. And, um, and so I think remakes can be good, but too often they're just lazy. Absolutely. It, well, it's a cash cow. What, what would you say about the Pirates of the Caribbean? I mean, do they need oh, to make? Or, uh, please what's the, don't or, do that again. Fast and those Furious. How many of those do they need to make? Okay, I, I, okay, but the thing about the Fast and Furious that is so strange is that it kept getting better. The first, I didn't even like the first one. But mm-hmm. by the time they got to the seventh one, it was it was good. And I'm got, of all the movies that are coming out this summer, none of them has me more excited than Hobbs and Shaw, which is the spin-off. Wow. Uh, doesn't that look amazing? <laughs> well, okay, so Trevor Noah, you know Trevor Noah, right? Yeah, so, of course. So Trevor Noah goes... If it didn't, if it wasn't a movie about, we have to have the cars and explosions because it would be a movie about male pattern baldness. <laughs> but on them, it looks good. <laughs> just like, just like Professor X. You know, um, yeah, that's that's fine. Uh, you know, Samuel Jackson, not too shabby. That's that's fine. I, I you know, look. I, every summer, I don't know if it's the effect of gamma rays on our brain cells or what, but every summer you got to go to a movie of chases and explosions. You just got to. Yes. Yes, indeed. Well, I brought it up because I think it was this weekend was Toy Story 4 or 5 or Infinity (laughs) had to come out. (laughs) They're just like, if we keep the kids quiet for three hours, (laughs) all parents could care less as long as the kids are quiet. Well, remember, it's not not called show art. It's not called show friends. It's called show business. And if you're going to spend $100 million on any project, whether you're making a new car or making a new movie, you're going to want to have as much insurance as possible that you're going to get some customers and yeah. with a pre-sold commodity you know pixar always said they weren't going to do any sequels and they they weren't going to do any stories from anywhere else they were going to everything was going to be original but there are kids out there who love buzz and woody and want to know more about the story and i have to say uh pixar hasn't always hit it out of the park um i think we can all take a pass on cars three but mm-hmm. Uh, the um, Toy Story 4 was beautiful. I loved it. Was it necessary? Not really. We had such a good ending in Toy Story 3. But Toy Story 4 was, I thought, great. And some great new characters. Key and Peele, you know, just to hear them back together again, it was worth it for me because I love them. And, uh, and also Keanu Reeves, <laughs> he's having quite the summer he's got three huge hits this summer and he plays mm-hmm. a characters like an evil knievel style action hero uh doll um called duke kaboom duke kaboom okay i'm right now i didn't know about that duke one. kaboom yeah 
Okay. And they'll be buying. You want now? I'm going to complain though. One of the main characters in Toy Story 4 is a character named Forky, who the child in the movie makes out of a spork and some googly eyes and a broken popsicle stick. And the whole thing is that once you know Forky has kind of an existential crisis because he says, "I'm a single-use plastic utensil. I was born to be thrown away." And Woody has to explain to him, no, you, are, you now have a face, you're a toy, a child loves you, you have a purpose of making that child happy. And great. So you can, of course, now buy a Forky from Disney for about 10 bucks. People, hmm. make your own Forky. The whole point is, right. you know, go out there and get a spork and put it on a broken popsicle stick and you're good. You don't need to spend $10. Yes. Uh I wish I had my $8 back from watching Men in Black. Did you see the That moment? was a disappointment, wasn't it? Because the first one is one of my favorite movies of all time. Don't yeah. we miss Will Smith? Exactly. And, yes, and exactly. you know, I love Chris Hemsworth. I love Tessa Thompson. Love them both so much. They rocked my world in Thor Ragnarok. Uh, I love Tessa Thompson in everything. First thing I saw her in was uh, Dear White People. And uh, she was amazing. We just talked about uh, Sorry to Bother You. She was amazing in that. She was amazing in Annihilation. They're great. It was the script that was not up to par, I thought. Yeah. Do you find that, that uh, and I'm sure you do, you wait and watch, read the credits. I didn't think that, I didn't know that Steven Spielberg was associated with that, but um, yeah. you and see Barry it in Levinson. the credits. And Barry Levinson, yeah. the original director, too. Yeah, I sure did. Yeah, so a big, like... dis- big disappointment. <laughs> How did you um, let that go through? You know, the, but you know who stole the show in that movie? Kumal Nanjiani. Which was the little yeah, savior thing, Pawnee. right? Yeah, Pawnee. Yep. Yeah, Pawnee. Yeah, exactly. Pawnee. Too funny. Um, when you were talking about risks, because you're talking about, you know, these movie houses are looking at uh, hedging their bets and making sure things, mm-hmm. right? And so in this in this last uh, cycle with the, what was it, the Oscars, there were a lot of movies that won that were Netflix, Netflix only. Yes. So where do you see that the divide between Netflix movies versus the blockbuster going to the movie theater? Look, that's the movie industry. They're going to sort it out the way they sort it out. I don't take the Oscars seriously at all because it's it's the industry voting for themselves. And, you know, I obviously I'm biased, but I think that the critics' uh, awards are much more significant because unlike the industry where I think they uh, don't actually watch a lot of movies, I think they vote for their friends, um, you know, we actually see them all. And so, uh, you know, the Oscars are going to do what the Oscars are going to do. But the fact is, those movies are there. They're real. We go see them. We care about them. And uh, and they are done with as much love and creativity as uh, as the big theatrical releases. You know, I'll tell you this. The awards that I like a lot are the awards the night before the Oscars, the Spirit Awards uh, that they give to the independent uh, films, and to me, those are much more authentic and meaningful, gotcha. and it's a much more fun show to watch too. Do you have a favorite genre? Well, you know, I'm a girl, and I do like my romantic comedies if they're well done. <laughs> uh, but uh, but I I really I like just about everything except for hardcore horror. So mm-hmm. I I'm I'm lucky that I like them all. Now, when you're talking about uh, technology, 
uh, you, I remember we're, you're talking about horror movies, and you know I used to love taking girls to see Freddy Krueger. And <laughs> it's laughable today. So that needle keeps moving as far as what's acceptable and what's not. How do you determine, hey, my kid is, is mature enough to watch something today that they never would have looked at 20 years ago? Well, I think that's much more uh, of an issue with regard to uh, language and sexual references than it is with violence, you know, which is basically just ketchup at that point. I think that, uh, you know, the standard for what used to be an R is now a PG-13, what used to be a PG-13 is now a PG, and that's particularly true with regard to language. Now, this is the craziest thing of all, is that it used to be that you could have one F word in a PG-13 as long as it didn't refer to sex. Mm-hmm. You know, you would need a PhD in semiotics to try to figure that one out. That doesn't make any sense. Either the, either the mm-hmm. word is okay for a 10-year-old or it isn't. You think they don't know the yeah. word? What is the point of that? When, anyway, now it's two. You can say, how did, how did that change come about? All of a sudden it's okay to say it two times? And it's mm-hmm. just ridiculous. And, and the studios manipulate it. For example, there was a Drew Barrymore movie a few years ago called uh, Ever After, which was a retelling of the Cinderella story. It's a lovely movie. But they decided at the studio that they were going to try to market it as a date movie for teenagers. So they put in one swear word to get it a PG-13 rating because they figure teenagers are, oh, it's too babyish if it's a PG. And the teenagers didn't want to go see a Cinderella movie, you know, even if it had Drew Barrymore and, and Angelica Houston in it. And so they didn't go. So when the studio released it as a video, uh, they took out the one swear word and released it as a PG. So that just shows you how stupid the system is. I don't even, you know, try to get my head around it. But now, you know, on... on um, at 6 o'clock at night, uh, you can watch TV shows on broadcast television that have jokes about, you know, bikini waxes and testicles and, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. Yeah. And how are, you going to, how are you going to try to figure out what a movie rating should be if that's on at dinner time for kids? So I think it's a, it's a lot more complicated than that. And as I said, you have to know your child and you know your own family. And, you know, I used to sit down with my kids and say, look – Everybody understands. I, I didn't know the term code switching back then, but that was basically what I talked to them about. I said, look, everybody knows there are words you can use in the playground. There are words that you can use in the schoolroom. There are words that you can use with your grandparents. There are words that you can use in our house. And you, I trust you to know which words go where. And if I feel that I can't trust you, then we'll have a conversation. Other than that, I am not going to keep you away from any books or movies just on the basis of language. That's um. A lot like a political answer there, now. <laughs> no, that, that's a, that is a real-world thing. I mean, you know, you may be a person who uses very salty language, but even if you are, you are going to understand that there are some places you're not going to be using it. Yeah. And we all do yeah, that. It was more so tongue-in-cheek because before we got on, I wanted to mention where it seems like – I don't watch 10 movies a week. I mean, God bless you. But <laughs> there seems to be an agenda in some movies, right? Like they're trying to push some agenda. Do you, do you call people out on that? Like, come on. It could be about cars really, that you're really uh, talking about. No, no, not at all. I don't, first of all, I don't like the word agenda because agenda is generally used by people to talk about somebody else's political beliefs that they don't agree with. 
and mm. we never use agenda about our own our own views. The fact Good is, point. movies are made by people. People have ideas, and whether you're talking about, say, The Wizard of Oz, uh, which some people think was uh, L. Frank Baum, he wrote the original book, that it was his idea about monetary policy, it was somehow with the scarecrow representing the farmers, and you know whatever. You know, mm-hmm. there's always we're, everything we do is a reflection of our priorities and our values, and priorities and values translate into politics. And so I think that's fine. Now there are times when I will particularly call that out. There was a movie that came out, I think it was last year, that was based on a real-life story about a lawsuit uh, that went to the Supreme Court. And the movie tried to portray it. As I said, I happen to be a lawyer, okay? So the movie tried to portray the story as being just a classic kind of Rocky story, the one person against the big bureaucrats. But I happen to know what was really going on behind that story. It was not one person. It was one set of business people fighting another set of business people. And sure enough, I look up and I see who's backing the movie. And guess what? It's the one side of the business people. So I did call that out and say this is a real misrepresentation of what went on in the real lawsuit. And it's a piece of propaganda. It's not a movie. And I've said that a couple of times. Nice. Yeah, I guess the better word was propaganda. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's fine. We all have points of view, but don't try to sugarcoat it. Don't try to hide it. Be honest about it. And uh, and that's fine. I mean, people, if you think about one of the biggest cultural shifts that we have seen in the last 20 years, it's the way that just as a culture, not not as a law, not in any other way, but as a culture, the the way that, uh, that we think about and talk about uh, GLBT people. And uh, even if you look at TV shows from 10 years ago that were considered to be very mainstream, the jokes that they made, the references they made, you know, I was watching a movie that I loved in, in the 1960s. It was on cable last night, and I was amazed that one of the main characters is a light comedy. Main characters grabs a waitress by the butt and is you know making all kinds of sexual innuendo with her and she was just laughing and that was considered okay too so you know we we change our minds based on what we see in movies and we somehow sometimes remember are reminded by uh, of of how far we've come if we look at things that were just even 10 or 15 years older i agree yeah that's a good point so real quick would you you have a favorite I'm sorry, I didn't hear the last thing you said. You have a favorite independent movie? Oh, favorite independent movie? Yeah. Oh, boy, that's tough. Uh, there are so many that I love. Um, uh, I'm just going to say the, the most recent one. I'm going to say The Last Black Man in San Francisco. That made such an impression on me. It's my favorite one so far this year. How's that? Okay, well, I'm going to go see that then. Right. So of all these yeah. movies you say you watch a week, are these just ones you're sitting... I'm sorry, you're cutting we in lost, and out. We lost you, David. I said, yeah, yeah I, I was asking, you say you watch like 10 movies a week. Mm-hmm. I was yeah. just curious, are, are, are most of those, are you just sitting in your home and watching, or how often are you actually going to a movie theater? Every Friday afternoon, I get an email from the publicist that works with the movie studio saying, here's where you have to be when next week. And so the movies that are coming out that week, uh, I will be seeing, I'm going to be seeing Spider-Man this week. Uh, which opens up next week, and I'll be seeing um, yesterday. And generally speaking, uh, the 
big movies, the big studio movies, they show us at night and they rope off three rows for the critics and then we, they bring in people who won prizes on the radio or whatever. And then the independent and international films are just critics only during the day. Uh, I like them in the theater whenever possible. That's the way they were meant to be seen. But more and more often they're sending me links to watch it on my computer and I'll do that if I have to. Okay. Cool. And we didn't spend any time on international films. Do you have a, uh, they seem more, it seems like, in my opinion, there's more, you're talking about the changing of time. Um, in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s, there was more dialogue in movies, and now there's more explosion. It seems like we're still getting more dialogue in international films, and wanted to get your take on international films. You're quite right about that. And one reason is that uh, if you look and, at uh, movies that are made even with big, studios in America, look at how often you see that one of the producing partners is, say, Legendary Films or one of these Chinese companies. Once you're making more money outside the United States than in, you really cannot have cultural references or wordplay in your dialogue because that's very specific and you're going to lose the international audience. And that's why movies have gotten stupider in that way. American movies have gotten stupider. You don't have the kind of witty dialogue that you had in the 1940s and 30s. Um, but that's still different in other countries where very often the government is helping to fund the movies. And so uh, that's why British films, you know, just seem so much more intellectual in a way or, or wittier. Uh, even the ones that are set in the lower classes or the working class, uh, there's just a lot more interesting um, grabby kind of dialogue but yeah I, I love italian films i love asian films um i'll just mention one japanese film that takes place mostly in china driving alone for thousands of miles is one i like a lot crouching tiger hidden dragon is oh one yeah one i like and yeah, that's uh, good one. yeah german films uh israeli films i just saw i'm going to be reviewing an israeli film for rogerebert.com this week called the other story so i'm just thinking about um, what I'm going to have to say about that, but uh, an Israeli film I loved called The Farewell Party. So, yeah, lots of great lots of great films from all over the world. Very nice, very nice. Yeah. Just the last, since we did talk about The Last Black Man in San Francisco, and mm -hmm. sorry, David, is this more so because the, the Golden State Warriors lost and they're moving <laughs> from Oakland to San Francisco? <laughs> I'm sorry, it's just... It's just gentrification and too much money being held by tech people, I think. Sure, sure. <laughs> so, Movie Mom, it, it's been a pleasure, and I wish, you know, for copyright reasons, I would love to play Gilligan's Island at the beginning of the podcast <laughs> when I post it. <laughs> but it, just put I, I in love a being, link. Put in a link to yes. the YouTube video. There you go. So, if you could highlight your, your website, how people can get in touch with you, get your books, all that good stuff. I That'd would be, be delighted. The website is moviemom.com. You can also find my stuff at rogerebert.com and on Rotten Tomatoes. And I love to hear from people. Write me anytime at moviemom at moviemom.com. And you can look for my books on Amazon, including the Movie Mom's Guide to Family Movies. Fantastic. Well, you've just been in tune to another episode of Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective. This is Hamza. And I am David. No, it was a definite pleasure. Let's stay in touch. I'd love that. Thank you so much, guys. You, d you just do a wonderful job. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers.